For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do, not, who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. From Ephesians, uh, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see she responds her husband, respects her husband. I'm sorry. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> okay, if you've been married for more than, let's say, a week, um, you know, you know what, you should know, even if you're not even married, um, that there are things in the relationship of your marriage that you need to change. There are things that need work in your life and in your marriage. There are things that you need to begin to do more faithfully, and there are probably also things that you need to stop doing altogether. You need to grow. So does your spouse. That is one of the presuppositions of Christianity, that all of us are broken, and the walk of Christianity following Jesus is Jesus, by his Spirit, putting us back together again over the long process of life. Marriage is one of the main ways in which God does that for us relationally. Paul Tripp is a theologian and was one of my seminary professors, and he wrote a book on marriage called What Did You Expect? And in that book, he uses what I think is a very helpful metaphor to describe the process of our marriages. And the metaphor he uses is that of a garden. And his point in using that metaphor is that gardens, and I don't know if you know this, by the way, this is also true with front yards and backyards. I know that by experience. They require constant tending, right? They require constant work. You always have to be pulling weeds, You always need to be planting good seeds or fertilizing your yard. I'm not encouraging you to fertilize your marriage necessarily, but you should plant seeds in your marriage, good seeds in your marriage, and pull weeds. Tripp's analogy helps us understand that the process of marriage is a constant process of 
destroying the things that are hindering our marriages from being healthy and constructing things, planting seeds that are going to enable our marriages to continue to thrive in the gospel. And it's, in fact, the gospel of Jesus that helps us and gives us the power to do that in our closest of relationships, in our marriages. And so that's what we're going to think about for a few minutes together this morning, the process of marriage. Two weeks ago... I preached about the purpose of marriage, and I said that the purpose of marriage is for it to be a committed companionship intended to grow us in the gospel. That's what marriage is about. More than any other relationship we will have in life, marriage reflects for us the love that Jesus has for his people. And marriage practically shows us every day our own need for God's grace. And the great news of receiving God's grace free of charge. So that's what we saw about the purpose of marriage. Last week, Alan um, spoke about the pain of marriage. And I really appreciated one thing that Alan said when he talked about the idea that all of us come into marriage based on the truth of Genesis chapter 3, the truth of sin being in our lives. All of us come into marriage with with brokenness. And, And Alan said that, Uh, there's usually a silent mutual agreement in our marriages that if our spouse doesn't address some of our issues and leaves it alone, then we will not address some of our spouse's issues and leave him or her alone. Because after all, that's going to be a painful thing to go through to address each other's issues, to address each other's sin patterns. And so oftentimes we just sort of ignore it. And so the pain of marriage is actually a good thing. It's the pulling of weeds in our own lives. And so today, I want us to think together about really what that process is all about. How exactly do we grow? And what I want to show you is two major movements. Two major movements in our marriages that have to be constantly happening if we're going to be in this process of growth and change. And then next week, we're going to wrap up the series with a sermon called The Practice of Marriage, where I'm going to give, hopefully, a lot of really very kind of boots-on-the-ground practical helps from the Scripture about how our marriages can grow in health. But today, two movements that need to be happening in our life if we're going to grow. Let me summarize it like this. Here's the main idea for the morning. A growing marriage is our committed companionship moving forward in trust and in love. And so those are the two movements. First, Moving from suspicion to trust. Secondly, moving from selfishness to love. Okay, so there's your outline. If you're a note taker, you might find that helpful. If you're not, you might not find it helpful. But that's the outline either way. So here we go. Okay, first, the process of marriage, the process of growth involves moving from suspicion to trust. You'll look at what the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians. In Galatians 5, 16 and following, you can see the importance of growing in trust in our relationships implicitly. He calls the followers of Jesus to walk by the Spirit, there in verse 16, as a result of their being saved, of their being adopted into God's family by grace. They are now in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a new person. And so you should begin to live out your new personhood, your new identity. In other words, you should cease practicing what Paul calls in verse 19, the works of the flesh. Now just look through that list of behaviors there in verse 19 through 21. These are characteristics that identify our former way of life if we're followers of Jesus, okay? They identify what 
the New Testament calls our flesh, our way of living apart from the Spirit's help and work. And if what Alan said last week is true, which I think it is, the facts are we all come into the relationship of marriage with these sorts of characteristics going on in each of our individual lives. Think about it this way with me. If we still struggle as followers of Jesus with the works of the flesh, if we're still called to put them to death, then we are bringing those things into marriage and those things are going to come out in marriage. Look at how relational all those, most of those words are. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Almost all of those imply community. They imply relationship. And here's the idea. When those things are coming out of your heart in your closest human relationship, in this committed companionship of marriage, what is being generated as a result is not trust. It is suspicion. Marriage is like an, a new marriage is like a new car. Shiny, beautiful drives smoothly, allegedly. But every time these things happen, it's like, you know, hail damage in the car. Every time the works of the flesh impact our spouse, every time we practice jealousy or envy or sexual immorality or any of these other things, fits of anger, it's like a hailstorm has happened in our relationship. And what was once a new car over time grows in dense. And if we're not careful, if we don't do the remedial work that's necessary on our vehicle, eventually it's such a clunker that we don't want to get in it and drive down I-35. Heck, we might not want to do that in a new car, right? But we for sure aren't going to want to do it in a clunker that we can't trust on the road. Here's the point. All of us, because these works of the flesh impact our lives individually, all of us have to work constantly. We have to tend the marriage garden to build trust and cast out suspicion. We must walk by the Spirit and stop doing these things if trust is going to be built. Can I talk to you folks freely? Some of your marriages are not healthy. Most of our marriages, if not all of them, are not as healthy as they should be or could be. Some of our marriages aren't healthy because we haven't been pulling these weeds in our life. We've been ignoring or overlooking the works of the flesh in our own hearts and in the hearts of our spouse. And what spouse and what's that gener- what, what that has generated is a, a culture and an environment of suspicion rather than a culture and an environment of trust. And I want you to hear me. You can have cohabitation without trust. You can have even sort of a silent relational ceasefire without trust. But you cannot have the intimate, committed companionship that marriage is intended to be without a growing trust in one another. And so I want to ask you, and I'm asking these of myself too, I want us to ask some questions to help gauge where trust is in our marriages. Where are you? in the process of moving from suspicion to trust? And are you moving in the right direction? It's a process for all of us. We've never arrived fully. But are you pulling weeds of suspicion and planting seeds of trust? Or to use Paul's language, are you putting to death 
the works of the flesh and seeking to be led by the Spirit of God, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Here's a couple of questions that I want you to seriously consider and maybe even take a second right now and pray silently to the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to help you and your spouse perhaps think over these things together and talk over them together. Here's some questions. And by the way, some of these I've, I've built upon from other books I've read in marriage, uh, especially Paul Tripp's book, Tim Keller's book, and a couple of others. I'm happy to recommend books on marriage if you would like. Um, so here's a couple of questions. To help you know where you are in the trust factor. First, are you able to step into your spouse's shoes, especially on an emotional level, and empathize with their struggles and pains? Or are you self-absorbed and self-focused, captivated by your own interests? Is this in the process of growth or not in your life, in your marriage? And here's why that's important. It's hard to trust someone who you don't feel like understands what you're going through or what your values are or what your struggles are or what your pains are. It's hard to trust someone. It's hard to place yourself in that person's hands. And so one way to ask yourself is, our marriage growing in trust is to ask yourself, can I empathize with my spouse? Can I place myself in his or her shoes? Can I relate to his or her emotional life? Second question, do you make excuses for your failures to do what you have promised? Or are you quick to confess sin? Now, here's why that's important. When you're in a marriage and your spouse comes to you with something that you have done that has hurt him or her, that has offended him or her, and you hear that and initially get defensive. I know because this is my tendency. I do it all the time. When the nuclear defense system relationally goes up, you know, the silos are bringing the missiles. You're ready to attack, baby. You get defensive. When that happens, listen, that does not engender trust. You don't need a Ph.D. in counseling, by the way, to figure that one out. It, it's hard to trust someone with whom anytime you go to them with an issue you have, they immediately put on their shoulder pads and their helmet and get defensive. They stiff arm any issues that you're going to bring to them. Paul Tripp writes this, self-righteousness, unapproachability, defensiveness, and self-excusing are all toxic to trust. You will not trust your spouse if in time of failure she is unwilling or he is unwilling to look at himself or herself. Now listen, I often talk to people in counseling situations pastorally, and I often talk to myself in my own marriage about this, um, who avoid conflict. A lot of you avoid conflict because partly you don't like it, but also you don't want to deal with how your spouse responds when you bring an issue to them. You just get tired of having to fight when they get super defensive. And part of what we need to hear, I think, is that you people need to fight. You know that? Some of you avoid fighting so much in your marriage that it's actually a huge weed in your garden. You guys need to fight. You just need to learn to fight constructively and not destructively. If you're in a relationship where there's a history of so often one partner being super defensive anytime an issue is addressed, the other partner is going to, over time, just stop bringing it up. And what does that generate? It generates suspicion. So are you growing in the ability to receive godly criticism from your spouse and confess your sin? 
A third question, thinking about trust. Do you share your dreams, fears, and hopes? Basically, the worst things about you and the best things about you. Think about it that way. Do you share those with your spouse? Or is it easier for you to be quiet and share them with someone else? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have other close relationships. But oftentimes, a warning sign in our trust in our marriages is when we find it easier to share our truest, deepest selves with someone other than our spouse first. And so, how are you doing in that? In the past, maybe you've shared and they've not listened. I know I've been guilty of that. Maybe they've made fun of you. Maybe they've shown little or no interest at all. So now you find yourself going to other people to have your deepest emotional needs met. Listen, I just want to encourage you to hear that that is a really, really bad sign for the trust or suspicion to trust movement. Those weeds need to be pulled as you walk in the spirit. Okay, one more question. Do you ever wonder what the other is doing when they're not with you? Very simple. Listen, trust means this. Trust means you have no concern whatsoever about what your spouse is doing when they're not with you. Can your spouse always follow you on that little Find My iPhone app? Can, can your spouse read right now all of your texts and emails without a, you giving it a second thought? If not, you need to pull some weeds. If not, you need to move along in the process of suspicion to trust. Now, instead of beating myself and beating all of us up, let me say this. Healthy marriages are regularly moving forward from suspicion to trust in these and other practical ways. And the power, listen, the power to do this is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How? How does that work? Listen, well, for another person to trust you, you must be willing to admit and confess when you have been wrong. When you have been untrustworthy, when you have sinned, and it's the gospel, the good news of Christianity that helps you do this because the gospel tells you that you are actually more sinful than you think you are. Welcome to Christ Church. Good news. You're worse than you think you are. But God knows this about you. And the gospel says when you confess your sin, he forgives and welcomes you fully into the freedom of forgiveness. The gospel says that being honest about your struggles brings you acceptance with Christ. Being honest with your struggles brings you acceptance with Christ. If that's true in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and you believe that, then that truth empowers you for you to be more and more honest about your struggles in your marriage. And as you're more and more honest in your struggles in your marriage, you can more and more experience the beauty and joy, not just of vertical forgiveness, but of horizontal forgiveness in your closest and deepest relationship. The gospel tells you that there's nothing that you need to hide if you believe that you were loved. So you can be honest. You can be open, not shrouding your life in secrecy and darkness and suspicion. Jesus frees you to do so. So in the power of the gospel, our marriages are designed by God to move over the course of a life from suspicion to trust. Secondly, the process of marriage is a movement from selfishness to love. Go back to the text with me. Look at those first few verses, Galatians 5, 13 through 16. Paul tells us that in Jesus we are called to freedom 
freedom, the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom of life in God, the freedom and the beauty and the joy of knowing that God knows you deeply and still loves you. That is a freeing thing. But what does he say next? We have a tendency to use our freedom as an opportunity. There it is again for the flesh. But instead, instead of using our freedom to indulge suspicion and selfishness, the gospel calls us to use our freedom to serve one another in love, verse 13. And then Paul says the whole law, all of the Old Testament is really fundamentally about two things. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul calls followers of Jesus here in our freedom in Christ to understand the true purpose of that freedom. The true purpose of Christian freedom. Freed from guilt, freed from shame, freed from the sting of the law so that, so that we might give ourselves up for another. So that we might love. That's the sum of the, the whole law. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 and 23. And I'm going to give you hopefully some more practical examples of what that looks like next week. We're going to talk about some here in just a minute. But if you'll also turn over to the Ephesians text that David read for us, verse 28, in the same way, husbands especially should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That is a lot because husbands love themselves a lot. Shocker, right? I know. If you love yourself a lot, you should love your wife like that. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Therefore, or uh, just as Christ does the church. So he's saying, Love in a marriage relationship is, verse 25, giving yourself up. Giving yourself up for the other. So in the context of marriage, moving in the process from selfishness to love is moving over time, is growing over time out of self-service into spouse service. It's... It's um, growing from self-loving to self-giving. Do you know how powerful that is? I love this quote from Amy Bloom. Here's what she says. Love at first sight is easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for a lifetime that it becomes a miracle. I don't think she means that in some sort of jaded way. I think that's true. Self-fulfillment and self-love are not that powerful. They start and they stop with you. But self-giving and sacrificing for another, that's something that's actually incredibly powerful because they change you, they change the other person, and by God's grace, they actually change the community around you as well. Remember that song, Huey Lewis, Back to the Future, The Power of Love? It don't take money, it don't take fame. You don't need no credit card to ride this train, right? Uh, tougher than diamonds, stronger than steel. You won't feel it until you feel, until you feel, until you feel the power of love. Love, you like that? Love is powerful. Huey Lewis got it, at least on that line. Huey Lewis nails it. Love is a powerful thing. The beauty and the joy and the hope and the glory of life is found in giving yourself up for others. You know that that's what Jesus of Nazareth talks about all the time? Jesus says the first will be last. And the last will be first. And that's actually what Jesus does. He takes the form in the gospel. He takes the form of a servant. 
He gives up his own life for us. And so we are living as God made us to be when we are loving other people, especially our spouse, through the act of deliberate, self-conscious giving ourselves away. Andrew Peterson is a Christian singer-songwriter that I really like, and I might have used this song before. He's got a song about his marriage that he titles Dancing in the Minefields, which is a great song for marriage. And uh, at one point, he says this in the song. He sings this. The only, way to live, to, the only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. But I believe that that is an easy price for the life that we have found. Listen, the beauty of marriage is found in the lifelong commitment to the process of loving and serving your spouse above yourself. So are you growing in that process? Are you on the path of moving from selfishness to love? Let me ask you a few more questions, as I did with with the first movement from suspicion to trust. Here's one. Are you increasingly willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles and pains of your husband or wife without bitterness or anger? Guess what? We don't like our lives to be complicated. We don't like our plans to be interrupted. We don't like dealing with other people's problems. But love, according to the scriptures, love according to God's own character, is the willingness to abandon the demand for a comfortable and predictable life. It's willing to enter into the pain of the other. This is something Marianne, my wife, has said to me often. um, When she maybe has an issue or a problem, she'll come to me and say, this is bothering me. And I'll say, well, that's not bothering me, so it's not a big deal. And she'll say, listen, if it's bothering me, if this is an issue with me, even if you don't think it's an issue, it's an issue. If one partner has an issue, it doesn't matter if the other partner thinks it's an issue or not. It's an issue because you're one flesh. You're united. You're in a committed companionship. And so are you willing more and more increasingly over time to see and to enter into the pain and struggles and neediness of your spouse? That's what love is. Second, are you increasingly able to lay down your rights and preferences and criticisms in the little moments of life? The little moments of life are what matter. Do you guys know that? Marriages, like most marriages, do not crumble because of huge major incidents. Most marriages crumble because weeds grow in the garden and choke it out over a period of years. Marriages crumble because the little things, the little moments, are not tended to. I love this quote from Anais Nin. She says, love never dies a natural death. It dies because we don't know how to replenish its source. It dies of blindness and errors and betrayals. It dies of illness and wounds. It dies of weariness, of witherings, of tarnishings. And you replenish the source of love by laying down your rights, by laying down your life in the little moments, in the dishes, in the diaper changing, in the getting up for the kids when they're screaming, in the bringing home something nice, in the remembering what your wife asked you to do, in the honoring your husband when he's had a hard day, in the little day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year moments. Third, are you more and more willing to answer the wrongs done to you by your spouse with grace and patient hope? Or are you fighting fire with fire? 
Now, it's very tempting, isn't it? It's very tempting to want to hurt another when we have been hurt, especially in marriages. Listen, here's the reality. It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to work this in us, the ability to do good and to love in the face of being wronged because we're committed to the relationship. Are you growing in that? When your spouse wrongs you, do you immediately wrong them in return? When your spouse says something hurtful, do you, do, you, do you immediately bring up some past thing that you know will hurt them and fire it out of your gun? Or are you willing to bear wrongs because you know that God has borne many of your wrongs in Jesus? That's part of the process. One more question. Are you increasingly unwilling to make any personal decision or choice that would harm your marriage, that would hurt your spouse, or weaken the bond of trust between you. Listen, here's what love is. Love means that you live intentionally and specifically with the interests of a specific person in mind. It's not generic. It's not abstract. It's not amorphous. We don't care, and God doesn't care about some like weird platonic ideal of love. Love is actually caring for a real specific person, your spouse, in real specific ways, in real specific moments over time. Are you moving forward in that process? Are you more and more willing, by God's grace, to lay down your life for another? Those are the movements of a marriage that's growing in health, the movement from suspicion to trust and the movement from selfishness to love. Okay, wrapping it up. Dangerous for a pastor to say that. It doesn't mean I've got 20 minutes left, I promise. Wrapping it up here, okay? Hearing these things about trust and love should make it clear to all of us that we do not do these things perfectly. Amen? We do not do these things well oftentimes. We are in process. And you see, even thinking about these things together as we reflect on our marriages, I hope, can draw us back to the love of God for us in the gospel. Because what does marriage do? Marriage confronts us with the depth and the reality. It confronts us with the depth and the reality of our own self-absorption. It confronts us with the reality of the evil that is resonant still within our own hearts. It does. And yet we know that Jesus Christ has done what the husband and the wife in every human marriage that has ever existed cannot do. Jesus has loved us perfectly without expecting, himself, without expecting anything in return. Jesus has given up his own very, very good life for us. Jesus has sacrificed himself for us so that we can live. Jesus suffered for us so that we will never be, you know what, so that we will never be alone in our marriages. If you've connected to Jesus by faith, you are never in your marriage alone. It's you, it's your spouse, and it is the power of Jesus' resurrected life in the Holy Spirit. And if you have that power in your relationship, you have the power to change. You have the power to move from suspicion to trust, to move from selfishness to love. You have the power, by God's grace and by the Spirit's work, to become a safe haven for your spouse. A safe haven is a trustworthy person to whom you can turn, knowing that that person will be emotionally available and will respond to you in a caring manner. You have the power 
to more and more be a safe haven for your spouse, for each other, when you see that Jesus is the great safe haven for you. He's the great safe haven for your spouse. spouse. Jesus, Jesus is with you. He's with you in the marriages. He's with you in the, in the little moments. He's with you as you seek to turn away from self-will. He's with you as you seek to turn away from suspicion and as you want to move forward in trust and in love. So in the power of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, let's go dancing in the minefields. Let's pull the weeds in our marriages and plant good seeds by his grace. Let's pray.